Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, the conversation we have to share with you today is actually one we recorded several months ago um, because we had the opportunity to read a really interesting article by uh, legal scholar Dion Kohler about youth sport, an issue that we frankly haven't engaged nearly as much in this show um, as we would ideally like to. Um, and we kind of had to we had to reach out and have that conversation the moment that we read it, but we wanted to save this uh, podcast release for the moment at which um, that article actually saw the light of the world so that everyone else can read it alongside us. Uh, and that time is now, uh, and that's why we're releasing it now. Um, I'm joined today to, to conduct this interview by Johanna. Hi, Johanna. Hey. And um, I guess what I want to do just in this intro is one thing that the two of us were thinking about in the aftermath of the conversation that we had with Dion um, was sort of some of the applications of thinking about sport as play, right? Which is really what this article is trying to do, is trying to get at the ways in which the American youth sports system is kind of fundamentally professionalized. And what that really means is that it is designed according to fundamentally capitalist imperatives, which essentially commodifies this thing, which might otherwise sort of be ontologically understood as play, right? And, and especially if we're talking about youth sport, and we're not normally, we're normally talking about much more professional, like much more intuitively professionalized forms of sport, i.e. elite sport for adults, or, you know, college age individuals who are adults. Um, and so there's a kind of a gray area there, because there's this question of, well, maybe it is work, but maybe it's okay that it's work. But if we're talking about children, then I think play has to be centered, right? As the purpose in an ideal sense of sport. Um, and, and Dion's work, I think, raises really crucial questions about that. And then one thing that, we, that then Johanna and I were thinking about and, and thinking through this framework is, well, this is actually a way into thinking about this sort of the discourse that has been occurring around um, cis and trans participation in sport, right? And the ways in which trans participation in women's, women's sport particularly has been demonized as this threat to fairness in women's sport. Um, and, and that frame is always an essentially capitalist frame, right? Because it's about competition and competition being a capitalist imperative. Um, and, and that becomes the way in which we think about the conversation. But if we were to look at this differently, if we were to look at like children's participation, including like um, trans girls' participation in sport, which is being prohibited, like literally prohibited, right, by state after state. So this is not an academic question. This is a really pragmatic question. Um, the entire purpose of sport that children are playing should be about play. And it's really not possible to be playful in a gender identity other than the one that you embody and feel comfortable within. So. I would say that like all of this sort of movement to prohibit trans girls and women from sport is completely antithetical to the very project of sport as play. What do you think? I, I totally agree. And I think as what's going to come out in this conversation and really ties into so many previous conversations that we've had, whether it's like Kim Shore's episode, whether it's the parenting episode that we did a few months ago, whether it's the episodes with Frankie Della Creta and, and other and other people about uh, cis and transport specifically, right? This it really brings in a sharp relief um, that 
about how cisness and it has been tied to capitalism and that literally because of the fact that our stru- our system is structured around capitalism that there has to be a competition that there has to be a winner and therefore a loser right that because the stakes are are so dire and that if you are a winner it means you're one step closer to for example a college scholarship right where we have outpriced college education for the vast majority of Americans that this this capitalist imperative that there has to be a competition that competition is the ticket to getting a college scholarship and not being indebted for the rest of your life right this is what shuts out this is the the rhetoric to, that's used to shut out trans people from participating and it is a fundamentally dehumanizing approach and mindset and so right if we remove the capitalist element um, if we remove this competitive imperative and that it's really about play and, you know, children expressing themselves and being empowered and feeling good about themselves and their bodies, that totally upends that entire conversation and really centers um, the human, the humanization of all people. Um, and so, yeah, I just think we were talking about this afterwards. And so we, but it did not make it into the conversation with Dion. It didn't, it didn't click until after the episode. And so that's why we really wanted to bring it to the fore and the intro here. Exactly. Yes. Thanks for that, Johanna. Um, okay. Well then with that said, we want to turn it over to our conversation with Dion Kohler about youth sport. Um, but of course, before we do just a, a final note, asking you if you wouldn't mind to, um, rate and review the podcast on Apple podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts, um, and follow the show on Twitter. Uh, and if you're feeling particularly generous, uh, you could support the show on Patreon. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoy Dion Kohler is Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Sport and the Law at the University of Baltimore. Dion, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay, great. Well, we're excited to have you as well because we're going to have a conversation today about a subject that I think we've frankly covered significantly less than many of our listeners might have hoped, and that subject is youth sport. You've written really a mammoth article slated for publication in August called Identifying Youth Sport. And what we want to do today is talk through your understanding of what U.S. youth sport is, how and why it has developed the way it has, and also the extent to which that system is morally sustainable. So in order order to kind of get into this, and we don't expect that readers will have had, or listeners will have had an opportunity to read your article yet, although hopefully they ultimately will. So first, can you walk us through what the traditional or conventional or mainstream narrative is about the nature and benefits of youth sport? Why is it generally understood to be an unequivocal good? Something we are certainly going to problematize, by the way, as this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, um, I I think there are a couple of things and and I I think this will resonate with everybody. Um, Number one, I think everybody feels like they know youth sports. And that's one of the reasons why I titled the article Identifying Youth Sport and really took an approach that I wanted to be very descriptive because I think all of us in the United States start from a place that youth sport is ubiquitous. We see it. Um, we've done it. Our children, our loved ones have done it. And so we we think we know it. 
Um, and, and because we think we know it, um, I, I believe that we what we really know is sort of the lore around it. Um, and the messages have been quite strong. And, and I'm not a sports historian. I'll leave it to sports historians to get, you know, the, the dates, times and places correct. But in my paper, I trace it back to at least the 1950s um, in the United States, where the government really started getting involved in pushing a message that youth sport is good. And um, as that the, the decades have gone on, um, the idea is youth sport is good because health and fitness is good. Um, it's sort of played into various narratives at various times. And I think that this really accelerated in the 1970s and 1980s. After Title IX, we got girls and women into sport. And so suddenly youth sport really, really took off. Um, I think what, what is interesting about these narratives is that um, if you look at the 2019 National Youth Sports Strategy that was put out by the Department of Health and Human Services, where they sort of tried to, you know, once again, you know, re-up the message that children should be participating in sport. Um, the youth sports strategy also acknowledges that we don't have a lot of good data and a lot of good information about youth sport. So what's interesting is without even a definition of youth sport, um, a lot of the research is a little blurry. And so when we come to conclusions that youth sport for kids is good, um, a lot of that is tied to research that shows, you know, a, a pretty um, unsurprising conclusion that that sort of movement, physical movement and physical fitness is good for, for people. Well, OK, um, but that's very, very different than concluding that the particular model for youth sport that we now use in the U.S. Um, provides benefits to children. I think there's far less uh, data to support that conclusion. That's fascinating. And just a few before the next question, there are just a few things I wanted to kind of highlight about what you said, right? One is that um, from what you saw, right, that this begins as a governmental narrative in the 1950s when the the narrative is that the government is not involved in sport, right? That's And that's part of what we're going to talk about is that it's driven by private forces and it is specifically not a governmental um, concern or sort of issue. Um, but yet this whole thing stems right from a governmental narrative. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and then also, of course, the lack of data. I think that's a really excellent point, And I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is sort of an interesting situation where um, the government, on the one hand, is not involved in youth sport and is yet very involved in the message of youth sport and has been for quite a long time. Absolutely. Um, and so continuing with that line of thought, to what extent, uh, from what you saw, does the youth sports system here in the U.S., to what extent does it follow a model that's shared by other countries? Well, I think it does and it doesn't. Certainly, there are lots of other capitalist countries and private club sports exist throughout the world. I think where the U.S. differs is is we're sort of on an extreme, an, an extreme um, in that we don't have any kind of government agency or sports ministry. Um, so we don't have, again, we have the government promoting sport, but we don't have the government regulating sport. We don't have the government funding sport. So that's pretty unique. So what we have is, is, is a more extreme form of um, really the market determining what youth sport is. So I think we, we sort of have a model that 
to some extent um, you see throughout the world. Um, but the idea that the government really gives little funding, little direction, there's no agency tasked with this. Again, the report that just came out in 2019 from the Department of Health and Human Services, there isn't really even a, a sort of office within the government that is a youth sports office. I think the government, you know, is is interested in youth sports and promoting it, um, but it but it really ends there. I think we're also unique in the world in that, of course, we embed sports in schools. And so high school sport, which I talk about in the paper as a component of youth sport, um, that's unique. That's that's really unique. So marrying sports with the educational program, I think, uh, is something we call the American model. We're very proud of. We're very steeped in that culture uh, and, and we're unique in the world in that respect. Absolutely. And, and you know, because um, the U.S. has such a unique or, or as, as you say, kind of extreme youth sport model, um, how, was this a capitalist youth sport system by design or was it more a product of market forces from what you saw? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I think if you go back to what I call in the paper, probably the only youth sport policy that we have, and it's not really directed at youth sport, it's an amateur sport policy. So I go back to 1978 with the original version um, of the Amateur Sports Act, now known as the Ted Stevens Olympic and Amateur Sports Act, which created the modern version of what is now known as the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And that legislation came out of a commission that was studying what was conceptualized as a problem at the time that the U.S. was really not succeeding um, in the way policymakers and the public thought we should be succeeding in international sport, right? Communist countries uh, were beating us um, for lots of different reasons. And so a commission was tasked uh, by President Ford to study the issue. And they came up with a lot of recommendations, which ultimately were incorporated into the 1978 Amateur Sports Act. And what struck me about the tone of that report, and, and let me say this is not judgmental, this is sort of taking a historical approach and going back in time, um, the Cold War was on. And so the, the report made recommendations to adopt a, an amateur sports system that could stand in stark contrast to communist sports systems. And that was to let the free market, let private enterprise develop the very best athletes, and they would go onto the world stage and win medals and show that private enterprise, capitalism and the free market um, does a better job uh, in the athletic sphere than, than communist countries do. Mm -hmm. uh, because that was a real question on the table. Of course, communist countries were funding uh, widespread mass sports systems and high performance sport. Uh, we were not doing that, and we were suffering the effects on the medal stand. And so I think the idea that we wanted to, to sort of deliberately distinguish ourselves in the world as a, a free market, private enterprise sports system, I think that was very, a very, very important underpinning to the Amateur Sports Act. Yeah, okay. And we're going to circle back to these kind of competitive imperatives we're talking about here, because I think that they raise... Um, really important philosophical and ethical questions about like what youth sport should be. And like, for instance, whether these force, these historical forces you're describing should in fact be the motivating factors for how we organize, you know, physical activity for our children. Um, but, but before we do that, um, there's some other things we want to hit on. One of the things in your piece that was, um, 
I thought really interesting. And I, I also think based on the way you laid it out, uh, foundational for how the U.S. system has developed in the way that it has is this question about how the U.S. courts have come to interpret parental authority and the balance of rights between parents and children, which is to say their children. How has the question and interpretation of parental authority shaped the U.S. sports system? And what ethical issues does that raise for you? Well, I think parental rights, parental authority, and I think the U.S.'s approach to rights for children, which is not many at all, I think that's an enormous part of this story. And I think it's a really important thing that we have to bring into conversations about youth sport. I think it's important to recognize that we now have this market-based approach, that the government has taken a sort of hands-off stance on youth sport. I think that's important. That's, that's half the story. Um, but the market really couldn't dictate the content of youth sport, and the market could not succeed in, in doing what it's doing in terms of shaping youth sport without parents being important partners in that transaction. So in the U.S., we have very, very strong legal support for the notion of parental authority over their children. Um, it is a fundamental constitutional right. It goes way, way back in constitutional law. And we recognize very few rights and autonomy interests for children. The law sees children as sort of dependent beings um, that are not yet sort of fully formed. They're subject to coercion. They're vulnerable. They need protection. Um, and so we don't take an approach where we recognize that children have sort of these independent interests, and we certainly don't do that in sport. And so one of the things I talk about in the paper is not only are we very committed to this idea of parental authority, and that um, certainly covers decisions to participate in sports and continue in sports, um, but we also, within sports law, uh, children have very few rights. So um, what I say in the paper is that in U.S. law, generally, children have few rights. And then when you put a child in sport, um, you add another layer of adult supervision, adult control, and a presumption that uh, children have fewer rights. And I talk about, for instance, a Supreme Court opinion on the Fourth Amendment where the court approves uh, suspicionless drug testing of student athletes at a high school. And the court says that, you know, we can treat athletes differently. They have less of a privacy interest than other students. And this is very, very common in case law, where we say that, well, we can do this to athletes because these children are athletes. We might not be able to allow this type of regulation or intrusion for the everyday student, but because this child has chosen to go out for the team, um, this child has less of a privacy expectation, this child has uh, fewer First Amendment rights, um, sort of on down the line. So once a child enters sport, it sort of further dilutes, you know, whatever small rights that we do recognize for them in the U.S. Oh, that is very illuminating, but also, sadly, like not surprising. And, and I think, you know, when we uh, talked to people like Kim Shore and we recently recorded um, an episode with um, some academic friends on, on sort of parenting as a sports parent, um, and it's clear that like parents, they have to like teach their kids about boundaries and about what are they comfortable with? What are they not comfortable with? Because 
the rights are so um because the rights are so trampled um so this is um yeah really really interesting go ahead Nate. yeah no kidding especially yeah no i just wanted to add because like what i'm hearing here is like these weird layers of coercion consent and consent right where um First of all, we have this notion that children don't have the capacity to consent, right? Which is why they need parental authority to help guide them to sort of correct consent in various contexts. But then we're saying, this is what's kind of twisted about this. Then we're saying that if kids consent to play sports, then they're waiving what rights that they do have to protection. But if we're also saying in the first instance that they can't consent, like how are we then determining that they can <laughs> consent to play sports, right? Like it's clearly their parents who are in a sense potentially coercing them into playing sports. And we know that this happens. And then that, and then because their parents coerce them into playing sports, they lose what other protections that exist for them. That's disturbing. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the pieces I wanted to put together in this, again, just as a way to to bring a lot of threads together. And, and again, that's why I called it youth, identifying youth sport. Um, parents have tremendous authority over the youth sport experience. So Fred Yen, a law professor, has documented that um, in most states, parents can simply waive their child's um, tort claims to allow them to participate in sports. Um, most states have levels of tort immunity for coaches, for youth sport providers. Um, so parents are really a key transaction. Parents are bringing children to sport, parents and, and guardians, caregivers. Um, and, and then children, you're exactly right, have, have very few rights. We sort of get them coming and going, saying, well, okay, but now you're in sports, and because of these other needs of the sports program, of the coaches, of the administrators, um, you have fewer rights than you would have if you were not participating. And you can see how that's backwards because it's the sports system that's being privileged over the children, right? It's like you'd think that we were trying to serve our children and nurture our children, but it's like, yet again, the institutions are taking primacy here and the children's interests are being subordinated to the interests of adults and institutions, which is entirely backwards. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the conclusion that you get, that it's inescapable. Um, and I think that there are, and I acknowledge this in the piece, I think, which is that's not always a bad thing. A child is not always correct. Um, there are plenty of cases where a child has been assigned to a JV team instead of a varsity team, and the child uh, thinks that they should be on the varsity and not JV, and the coach has evaluated the, the child's skills and says, no, you're a JV athlete. Um, and maybe we don't want to have sort of constitutional law uh, claims over whether you're on JV or varsity. But I think the bigger picture where we're so strongly committed to parental rights, parental authority, and the authority of sports regulators, that's the piece that really concerned me. And so I talk about in the paper that the U.S. is one of the only countries, I think the other two are Somalia and South Sudan, that have not signed on to the U.N. Convention on the Rights of the Child. And one of the biggest reasons why we haven't signed on to that, um, and it's considered really dead as a legal issue in the U.S. is that there were conservative groups very, very concerned that this would erode parental authority. So um, the U.N. Convention, for instance, gives children a right to play and um, to sort of physical movement and physical activity. A lot of countries have used this 
to rethink their youth sports system. These are conversations we're not even having. We don't even go down that road because the notion of children and rights um, is really not something as a legal matter that that is is you know sort of openly um, continually discussed anymore. Um, I'm so glad you raised that point because when I read that in the paper, like I was just so disgusted. Um, uh, yeah, I just, yeah, the, 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 the lobbying groups behind, um, our, our refusal to sign that, sign that piece is just really disgusting. And, you know, one thing I wanted to get your sense of is, you know, to, when it comes to parental rights, to what extent did the government, or so kind of the courts, to what extent did their belief in parental rights and authority differ when it comes to parents' race and sexuality? And, and I ask because, um, I mean, I'm thinking in, in contemporary terms, um, although there's obviously like historical component, as you've already addressed. And, you know, when we think about like the state funded boarding schools for indigenous children, you know, which is sadly in the news. Um, so we know there's a, a historical precedent. But when we think about today, right, we know that black and brown parents, as well as queer parents and parents of trans children that right now that they are currently being portrayed as like raising their kids incorrectly. And so they have sort of less parental rights where like the state of Texas, for example, thinks that it can sort of stand in the way of what a parent is doing with its children. So to what extent do issues of racism and like homophobia and sort of these things come into play when it comes to recognition of parental rights? Well, I think there's no doubt, as, as you correctly say, I mean, historically, we have such a long history of both um, recognizing parental authority, but also recognizing that the, that authority only goes so far and the state will quite happily step in, um, whether you're talking about American Indian parents and, and taking children away in that context, um, or more modern, people like Dorothy Roberts have written about the child welfare system, and we know racism is so deeply embedded in decisions to remove children from their homes um, and, and put them into foster care, et cetera. So I think the bigger picture with parental authority is, um, is of course, um, impacted by systemic racism, by a long history of that. I think what's interesting is, though, when you talk about sport, um, youth sport is considered part of a good childhood. You're considered a good parent if you put your kids in youth sport. Um, you know, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're promoting a healthy lifestyle. Um, so in a way, the, the choice to put a child into youth sport, um, that's the sort of model of good parenting. That's the narrative that we have. Um, and that is circulating within this overall structure where we know that um, parental rights are often not as respected in the context of, for instance, black families, um, American Indian families, um, and the rest. So I think it's, you know, as everything is, it's a, it's a complex story, but I think it is interesting that uh, once you put your child in sport, you sort of get that, you know, good parent stamp of approval. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that I wanted to return to is you kind of talked about um, 
earlier how the, the Cold War anti-communist influence on our approach to amateur youth sport was a real influence. And so I definitely want to return to that. And so I'm going to go on like this is going to be a, a bit of a long preamble as I talk a little bit about the history behind it. Um, and, and to get us to talk about how the U.S. capitalist approach to youth sport was a fundamentally political project, right? Whereas the narrative is that the government is not involved and it's apolitical and it's privately funded. Indeed, it was actually fundamentally political. Um, now, as someone is a, who is a historian of Cold War sport, who, who studies the context that the U.S. was trying to identify itself against, um, I really found the capitalist political dimension behind how the U.S. has done what it did to be especially striking with respect to youth sport. Now, research shows, and again, you mentioned this earlier, that the communist states in Eastern Europe purposefully developed what they called mass sport or what some people of what some people called sport for all programs. And they did this in every country to make sporting participation as acceptable to everyone as possible alongside its elite sport program. Um, and, and, and they saw it as a connection where if we bolster mass sport, it will also improve our elite sport program, which again, isn't totally dissimilar to what we have in the US. Um, of course, the elite sport programs tended to get more support and funding because these communist state viewed the political project of sport as something that was more imperative or kind of more important to expanding their legitimacy and their reach by winning Olympic and other medals. Um, but the fact remains that the, the fact that everyday people even had access to most sports in a participation-based environment that was not so focused on winning is so, so different than the U.S. sports system. Um, and in my research in particular, when I've looked at some of the Hungarian athletes who defected to the U.S. after the 1956 Hungarian Revolution, and they defected with government aid through the CIA and through Sports Illustrated, um, when this happened, U.S. advocates specifically narrativized and called for the need to privately fund the Hungarian athlete defectors in sports clubs as a way to defeat the Soviets at the Olympic Games. And um, there's some I, I found an article kind of showing how um, individual donors were key to preventing the Russians from, quote, wiping us off the athletic map at the 1964 Tokyo Games and how voluntary scholarships were the democratic way to solve the problem, which was much more appealing than having the government subsidize the program, supposedly. Now, as you mentioned, and you talked about this earlier, the presidential fitness test that was created in the 1950s and the Ted Stevens Olympic and Amateur Sports Act of 1978 were developed specifically to address U.S. capitalist Cold War concerns about needing to defeat the Soviets. And I guess, this, again, this is a lot of preamble, but I was kind of wondering... Um, to what extent is this capitalist political element discussed in the literature that you've looked at? And if it's not discussed very much, why do you think that's the case? Well, I think a couple things. And, and I just want to go back and I, and I want to add, you know, in the wider kind of legal context um, that that the Amateur Sports Act came out of in that early 1970s period, um, the Cold War panic, the panic that capitalism wasn't getting its due in, in the American media, in the American context, 
of, you know, sort of discussions generally about, um, you know, the free enterprise system and, you know, Supreme Court justice before he was a justice, Lewis Powell wrote a very famous memo um, for the uh, Chamber of Commerce saying we got to get our act together and defend capitalism. You know, there there was in, in some strains the, this uh, of U.S. society, this thinking that um, people were giving up on capitalism. Mm-hmm. And so um, we needed to really shore this up. And of course, because we were losing in sport um, and everybody wants to win on the international stage. It's it sort of those, those panics kind of merged with sport in 1978 in that way. I think at the time, grassroots sport, youth sport, we, we it just wasn't organized. We weren't doing much about it. Um, it wasn't the sport model that we have today. It was sort of on its way to being that. But back in the 1970s, um, there was still quite a lot of public funding on the local level for youth sport. Um, what's happened since the Amateur Sports Act, since the 1970s, and that Cold War kind of climate is, you know, neoliberalism has just sort of those political forces have, have really swept society. Um, Title IX brought more girls into sport. And, and that's when things really took off in terms of youth sport um, sort of crystallizing into the model that we have today. So it wasn't always like this. I think if you assume that the folks back in the 1970s were sort of well-intentioned um, in trying to address youth sport, um, my message in my scholarship has been we need to update our thinking because it's not the 1970s anymore and 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 these different forces have now really come into play on youth sport but in terms of why it's not addressed it's really not in the legal literature it it certainly could be in the sport history literature or sport sociology um there's so many different strands of thinking about sport um but i found it's not really addressed in the legal literature and i don't know why i mean i've addressed it i um, have published several articles where I refer back to the commission uh, that that led to the Amateur Sports Act. I find this history to be a, a very crucial fact in our story, our sports story and our sports law story. Um, I would say I haven't found many other sports law um, thinkers that that mm-hmm. have sort of shared that view. I don't know why. I think to some extent, um, in sports generally, not just in sports law, there's a there's a way that we sort of take things for granted. And so going back and unpacking, well, hey, this is a Cold War approach, or this was really about sort of promoting capitalism and free enterprise. Um, people see that as sort of maybe a quaint detail, but but not a key part of the story because you know the system is what the system is, and and you know most people are working within the narratives that we have. And I think that's you know, again, that's bigger related to sport um, and not just sport law. So it's not something that really gets talked about. I think it's it's incredibly significant from a legal history standpoint um, and from a sports history standpoint. I'd like to see a lot more consideration of it. And I will say that when I talk with policymakers who ask me various questions about Olympic and amateur sport, I always make a point of of giving this background because I think it's really, really relevant to how we think about these issues. Absolutely. And just two two follow-up points that I wanted to make. One is is this your your point about how the legal literature doesn't really talk about capitalism, that it's sort of like an invisible thing, it's sort of assumed, is really striking. We just read um, um, a scholar named Chen Chen, who's a sports management scholar, just came out with a piece about 
how capitalism is like, sorry, how, how capitalism is the ghost of the sports management field and the literature because sports management folks don't actually talk about capitalism and similar things that it's just assumed that like we are in a capitalist society and it just is like accepted and it's not actually critically pointed out in question. So it's very interesting that we have such similar trends from the legal field to the sports management field, two fields that have an enormous influence on how U.S. capitalist sport is structured. Probably um, the two most influential fields, I would add, Johanna. Probably, probably yeah. I mean, you're totally, yeah, you're, I'm thinking on the fly. I think you're really, really right. Well, Joanna, um, let me just stop you right there. I yeah. think in the legal literature, there is certainly thinking about how capitalism impacts sport from the perspective of a tremendous amount of literature on antitrust law and college sport, for instance. Ah, that is okay. that is directly mm-hmm. taking aim at the way, you know, sort of lack of antitrust enforcement um, means capitalism run amok and coaches at the college level making $12 million a year. So there's plenty of literature on that. I'm speaking specifically about youth sport um, and sort of the idea that this is just the way it needs to be or, um, you know, this is the way it is. So I think capitalism as as the background condition for youth sport is just baked into our assumptions about how things need to be. But in terms of the antitrust scholarship at the college level, yes, there's certainly been challenges to capitalism in that respect. Absolutely. No, thanks. Thanks for that nuance. And indeed, I think to like the many people, including you that I follow on uh, that I follow on Twitter, um, I, I, I know that. So so thank you for that. Um, the other thing that I thought was striking it is you kind of talked about how, you know, the youth sports system in the 70s when um, the Amateur Sports Act was passed is not the same as today. And, 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 and you included Title IX in that. And it's so interesting because, you know, when we think of like Title IX in particular, um, right. We kind of think of it. People, the, the narrative is that like this is the government interfering in sport. And that's kind of been the narrative for a really long time with some people thinking of that as a really negative thing. When in fact, what your research is, what your what your work is showing is that like the private the, the private funding for youth sport has has just like increased essentially, whereas the public funding has really decreased. So I think again, there's there's some slippage, right? There's a gap between the narrative again that's being pushed about the government kind of butting in and interfering versus the actual historical lived reality, which is that, you know, public funding has receded and um, that it's that youth sport is largely privately funded. So again, that was just I thought that was a really striking difference. Yeah, and I think uh, I think that's a really important point because okay, we have you know as of 2018, 2019, about three and a half million girls participating in high school sports. Most of those are going to be publicly funded institutions um, and not private schools. But before you even get to, and this is something I'm I'm working on a piece now on the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Um, before a girl can even claim a spot on a high school team, by and large she had to be part of the youth sports system. You have to show up in high school as an athlete. Uh, And so this is something that I've talked about as well in terms of Title IX, which is we need Title IX, we don't have enough Title IX enforcement, but if we're not thinking about how Title IX links up to the youth sports system, and the, the sort of private pay-to-play model, um, we're not really fully addressing gender equity in sports. Mm, yeah, that's a great point. Um, now, what I want to do is, um, because this is a piece that 
I really appreciate in part because it uses both history and theory. Um, and Johanna has been, of course, highlighting some of the key historical issues. And you've both been really nuancing that conversation in terrific ways. But I want to shift now, because that's my, uh, my want, uh, to some of your theoretical innovations. In Marxian political economy, a distinction is made between use value and exchange value. Use value refers to the immediate gratification received from the use of an object that has been produced. Things that are made for their use value, therefore, are not commodities, but things with value in themselves. Commodities, on the other hand, are objects that are produced for their exchange value, for the precise purpose of accruing a surplus through their sale. You make a crucial theoretical intervention into the understanding of U.S. youth sport in this article by suggesting that while youth sport, in a pure ontological sense, may be defined as play, in the context of U.S. capitalism, it has been commodified such that we should now understand it as a form of professionalized sport. That is, sport that is conducted in order to produce surplus value. Value that is produced by children supposedly playing, but the benefits of which are appropriated by others. Can you explain why you view youth sport as exploitative and also what the ontological distinction is between professionalized sport and sport as play? Yeah, and and I want to say here, I did not ever use the term exploitation in the piece. I wanted to take, to, to strip this down to the basics and simply present what I saw as the truest picture of, of youth sport that I could. And I thought that key to doing that was to really dive into the philosophical literature and the literature around what play is. And as you say, play is defined as having only use value for the player. And so when you talk about play, play is self-directed. Um, you know, we decide when we play, when we don't play. We decide what the sort of rules of the game are when we play. Um, play is only for our own pleasure. It is not for anybody else. And so I, I really rely heavily on the sports philosophy literature for that. And then I contrast it, as you say, with what sport is. And, and let me say that f philosophers, and I acknowledge this in the paper, sport philosophers, that you know the, there can be some blurry lines between play and sport and when do you sort of cross over. Um, and, and certainly there are, there are nuanced debates about that. But I'm talking about in general categories um, what I present in the paper is, is it's a continuum. So we start on one end of the continuum at play where it's purely a matter of use value for the player, purely self-directed, um, starting, stopping, rules, enjoyment, um, everything is self-directed. And then as we move across the continuum and stretch toward fully professional sport, which would be you know our professional sport leagues, um, what we get is increasing surplus value generation, which is through sport, which is creating value for others. And this is where, um, Nathan, I relied on some of your work, which is that this value for others isn't just um, profits. That's the most visible, of course, value for others. And I talk about at the college level, um, it's, it's quite apparent, um, the surplus value that's being created and, and who's getting it. And we're sort of having a reckoning at that level right now. 
Um, but at the youth level, it's much more concealed because we say, well, this is play and this is for a child's benefit. In fact, what I do is I plot it on a continuum and say, as a child enters youth sport and continues in youth sport, play at some point along the way, depending on the program the child is in, depending on how much the parents sort of continue to push the child forward in sport. Play uh, is converted into sport. It is creating value for others in many, many different ways. And I'd say the, the last half of the paper really documents all the different stakeholders who benefit from the surplus value generated from what I call the youth sport pipeline. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and I think that that's what to me was so innovative about the piece. And I mean, aside from everything we've been talking about, but like I get excited about, you know, theoretically is, is thinking about youth sport in a way that we don't normally, because going back to where we started at the very beginning of this conversation, right? Our, the beginning of our conversation with the, the naturalized assumptions that we have about the role of youth sport, what youth sport means generally kind of in popular culture. And it's taken for granted that it is an inherent good. So therefore to even raise this question and I, and I, and I get that you're, um, that you do you don't use the language of exploitation, but I will say by by adopting that Marxian framework, yeah, um, there's certainly the, <laughs> I think an implicit promise that there is a of piece course, of exploitation. Of course, of course, yes, yes. Um, and, and and I think that that's really important though because we don't normally think about it that way, right? Precisely because we're normally thinking in terms of dollars and cents as as the measure of exploitation in that very traditional Marxist sense, um, and that that as you say, it sort of invisibilizes the kinds of harm that then can exist in youth sport and are part of the exploitation, right? That are not extricable from the entire model. So in the article, you use the language ultimately of meaningful reform to the sport system, in a sense suggesting that despite the numerous forms of harm you assiduously document, the system may in fact be redeemable. For me, and this is a, so this is a conversation I'm really excited for us to be able to have, for me that redemption is hard to find. And this is why. To begin with, I find it difficult even to see youth sport as having particularly, as being particularly beneficial in the ways that are usually trumpeted. I'm not saying that you're making these claims necessarily, right? Because you are documenting the ways in which it is typically perceived. And so that's what I'm trying to address, like this typical, this conventional perception of youth sport. In, far, in part because of the fact that youth sport relies on a logic of health, I think, which is a very significant part of that framework, that is in turn predicated on the discursive harm wrought by the putative obesity epidemic, right? An ostensible health crisis fueled by diet and fitness industry funding and a neoliberal public health turn towards healthism, which is to say individualized responsibility for health, which hello, during this pandemic, <laughs> I think every single person in this country has now experienced firsthand. And then on top of that, right, frankly, the efforts of the NFL um, and other leagues to justify their enterprises. The NFL justifies the fact that it is the systematic sacrifice of people's brains because it says, well, well, listen, if we didn't play football, then everyone would be, quote unquote, obese in America. Right. I mean, that's literally the logic that they use to defend the destruction of brains. Um, so, you know, all this is to say then that the, the fact that the that professionalized youth sport which you document so incisively, produces profoundly unhealthy impacts through overtraining and physical and emotional forms of abuse, right? For all these reasons, it's difficult for me to accept, even granting many of the ostensible benefits that are no question widely acknowledged for youth sport, right? Like, I don't necessarily see that those benefits are even there. So I guess what I'm asking here is whether the current sports system is working at all. The youth sports system is working at all. 
if there is anything worth saving, pro sport, the Olympics, college sport, because youth sport is a feeder into those things, right? Like there's a way in which, as you document in the article, the supposed benefits of this system are to those other things, to pro sports, to the Olympics, to college sport. These are parties that take professionalized youth athletes who have been prepared to achieve and to succeed at those levels, right? And so if you were to, to, to reframe youth sport as play in a different way, right? To completely reconfigure the enterprise, then there's a lot of harm to those parties, even to fans, you mentioned, right? Like there's a lot of things that people <laughs> are extracting from the system. But what I'm asking is, are any of those things necessarily worth saving in their current form? <laughs> well, I think, I think that's an excellent question. And, and the way I would answer it is this. It was very important for me to just lay out, to just sort of map the terrain of youth sport so that the next step would be, okay, let's search the terrain and see, is there anything worth saving? And I think where I end up right now is that it's premature to say that there's nothing worth saving because we haven't ever really tried to save it. Um, what we have is mostly a hands-off system. We have more um, sort of state regulatory power or state lawmaking around, for instance, youth sport tourism and promoting youth sport tourism than actually shaping youth sport. So number one, I think it's premature to say there's nothing worth saving because I think we've made no meaningful efforts at reform. I think the 50 state uh, youth concussion laws are all about simply promoting the game of football. They're, they're a sham. They give people a false sense of security. Um, in the legal world, they're a great argument for assumption of the risk and to you know lay blame at the individual for ever taking up uh, football. Um, so that's not meaningful reform. Even things like California, which has a statute limiting full contact practices in youth football, if you actually read the statute again, it reads like an assumption of the risk document. Um, you know, parents have the right to make the decision to put their kid in the great game of football, and if they do, they should be aware of the risks. So, um, so we haven't really tried in any serious way to 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 remake youth sport. And part of what I wanted to do with this project was to open some eyes and alert policymakers uh, and parents to the idea that we should and that we could. Um, I think we haven't tried because we have been busy supporting the current stakeholders, as I just said, for instance, with youth concussion laws. I think we haven't tried because there are a lot of well-meaning parents who simply believe the prevailing narrative that, wait, isn't this supposed to be good? And aren't some tough lessons kind of part of the game? And, and I need to sort of go along with this. We need to change those narratives. So I hold out hope, um, number one, in that sense, because we haven't tried, um, I consider myself to be somebody who let's see, let's see if we can try, let's see what we can do. And in this sense, I, I really take um, some inspiration from a person like Catherine McKinnon, who did some incredibly radical writing, obviously, in, in feminist legal theory. Um, about the system, about false consciousness, about whether any of the patriarchy could be changed. Um, and yet Catherine McKinnon to this day works on some really important practical uh, legal innovations that um, are, are projects sort of working within the system and, and trying to build toward incremental change. So I think that that to me is, is an important model and I think it should be tried in youth sport before we think, um, before we think it's, it's hopeless.
The second reason I think it's not hopeless is I'm very intrigued as youth sport as a site for children's rights. Um, as we talked about before, parental authority um, is is the the language of of you know sort of the law of the child in the U.S. But I think youth sport provides a great context where we can actually give children more rights. Children know when they're in pain. Children know when they are tired. Children know when they're having fun. So the idea, the usual thinking in the law that, well, children, you know, they're not mature enough to make decisions about this, that, or the other thing. Well, youth sport is exactly what children can be experts in, and they can know whether they like it, and they can know um, how to perhaps make it up in a way that serves their needs. So I'm very interested in exploring innovations in youth sport where we give Give children autonomy interests in ways that we've never done before, and use youth sport as sort of a, a sort of training ground um, for children to say, you know what, children can have some rights, they can have some autonomy interests because they can fully understand what their experience is in youth sport. And I think the third reason is, um, and and maybe this is just a sort of you know wistful romantic in me, but I think if you do talk to kids and if you do talk to some athletes, even when they talk about very very harmful aspects of the sport experience, I think they still find that there's some good. And I think, again, in terms of valuing children and valuing their experience, for many children who become athletes, there is a piece of that experience, if not the whole thing, that they truly did value. And again, before we sort of throw the model out, I would like to see us spend a lot more time and a lot more focus and a lot more research on children's experience in sport. What we have now is a literature built around adult thinking of youth sport and not as much literature on children's experience in youth sport. We certainly have the medical community that has documented overuse injuries and we certainly document sort of back end harms. But what about the rest of the experience? And so again, before we sort of move past it and say this is hopeless and irredeemable, I would like to get much more child-centered. I would like to try for meaningful reform. You know, I'm a Brandeisian in this way. Maybe capitalism can be reined in enough that we can preserve a space for kids to have some rights, to have some respected autonomy interests, and, and maybe really reform youth sport. So kind of related to this, um, the, the reasons for hopefully, you know, possibly being able to reform youth sport within our capitalist system, you know, I'm, 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 I'm wondering, you know, to what extent has the last five, six years made an impact, right? When we're sort of thinking, and we always talk about gymnastics on the show, but like, I, I think I'm, I hope that that was at least kind of like a flashpoint maybe some kind of turning or something to sort of say, like we actually have, like you're saying, we have to listen to athletes. We have to listen to kids. Like we have to empower them um, and, and allow them to be empowered, right? It's not that they are totally disempowered, right? We have to empower them, but also listen to them when we, when we, and, and ask for their input um, because we're just missing out on so much and it's causing them so much harm. So I guess my sort of question is, and if you don't know, that's fine, you know, to what extent have you seen there be a shift in the last couple of years out of the abuse coming out of gymnastics and other sports with athletes talking about their experiences? Or do you think that we just haven't moved the needle much since then? Well, I think we've moved it a lot in, in two ways. Number one, you have athletes sharing their stories of abuse and demanding better systems. That's a worldwide mm -hmm. movement. It mm -hmm. continues 
today. Um, you know, there are stories throughout all of sport. Gymnastics is really, um, it was the most high profile example here in the US. Unfortunately, you know, gymnastics is, is not the only place where it's happening across sports. And so what we're seeing is athletes really, um, you know, the movement I think is accelerating, it's gaining ground. I think the Alston decision in college sports, these things trickle down, these things uh, matter. Um, It certainly matters as a matter of antitrust law for the affected athletes, Um, but it really matters to all athletes who say, wait a second, the tide is turning, I can speak up. So I think the movement is gaining ground. I think what's also really important that's happening in youth sport is parents are getting a different view of what sport is and getting a different understanding of the systems in place and that are not in place. So one thing that has struck me is that in talking about Olympic and amateur sports in other contexts, not in the context of this piece, but at other workshops and and presentations I've done, I've had parents come up to me and say, wait a second, is there nobody regulating this? Is there, we just assumed that the government was in charge. Wait a minute, hold Mm -hmm. on, what, what, what? So I think parents are now seeing there was no safety net. There is no backstop. There's no government agency making sure that the doctor treating your, your child is not a pedophile. There's nobody in the background making sure that this is a safe, um, harm-free experience for your child. And so I think parental awareness has also changed, and I think it will continue to change as athletes continue to speak out. Yeah. You know, th- those are compelling points, and we've certainly seen much the same in terms of, of the, the the shock that so many people have experienced about, the, as you put it, the, la- the lack of a safety net that essentially exists in the context of of youth sport and sport more broadly. Um, and, I, and I also am very sympathetic to your kind of your call for the centering of child athletes' voices in any conversations about the sort of nature of harm and also benefit that exists in the context of youth sport and trying to reconfigure or reform youth sport with that in mind. Um, now, just to kind of continue the conversation, not, not, as a, not meant as a rebuttal, but just more sort of like teasing out some of my, my own thinking on the subject. Um, you know, part of what this gets at is that I think that what parents have had trouble seeing previously and and what is so rarely part of the focus is that in the process of producing the sausage that is like youth sport or elite sport or however we want to characterize it and there are obviously nuances to each of these different contexts um it's not just a question right of of is there benefit or who benefits or how do we distribute the benefits right which is again that that's the traditional question of exploitation Again, not to put that language into your mouth, but if we're thinking like <laughs> when Marx is talking about use and exchange value, right? That's ultimately why Marx is going where he's going with, with that conversation, because the whole problem with exchange value or one huge element of the problem with exchange value is that the, the exchange value that is ultimately achieved once the product is sold, once effective demand is achieved, it doesn't actually go to the party that produces that value in a, in a fair, just way, right? The surplus value goes to the capitalist. That's how exploitation is systematically baked into capitalism, it doesn't go into the, to the worker who is actually producing that value, right? And so the worker is not getting the benefit that they deserve. And so we could, of course, think of youth sport in that way. Are the kids who are playing or working at sport, are they getting the primary value in that enterprise? And that's a good question. It's an important question. We've been talking about that. 
But then the other thing, and I think that sometimes this is lost even in Marxian conversations is, and this is what I've tried to push in my own work, that when we have a kind of exchange between parties, there's also the question of what if, if harm is built into a productive process, right? Is the harm also distributed evenly? And that's the thing that I think is most worrying in the context of youth sport. And that's what we don't recognize in those mainstream conversations, although it has become, and Johanna, you were highlighting this, it's become increasingly visible, right? And I think that the parents are being shocked at it. Like sometimes the parents are producing the harm, right? Like the parent who's essentially verbally abusing their child on the sideline or this or that, like that, that parent is actually directly responsible for the harm that's happening. But I mean, very often the parent just thinks this is going to be good for my kid because that's what the discourse says, right? Like it's, you're going to build your child's character. You're going to make your child more healthy. You're going to give them skills, right? Like this is, a, it seems on the surface to be inherently good to enroll your kid in sport for all these potential benefits. So then it's shocking for the parent to see that harm might be part of that project or that process. And this is where I want to get to a kind of ontological question and my, my fundamental concern about capitalist sport. Because what I want to ask is, is it even possible to have sport as play, which I think we all here agree as an endpoint is the ideal scenario. Like I don't think there's any debate amongst the three of us at least that like what we want youth sport to be more than anything else is playful. We want children to have those kind of joyful experiences in sport because whether or not we want to call that health or whatever else, that joy is going to reap benefits for the children directly. And it's harder. That's a, that's a use value. I think we all agree that's use value. Okay. But, my concern is, is it even possible to have sport as play within a capitalist political economy that is oriented entirely towards the production of value in competitive imperatives? Because another way of saying this is, are there ways in which professionalized sport not only produces an appropriated surplus of benefit for others, it does, but it does so at a tremendously harmful cost to the children performing professionalized youth sport. Here's the thing, precisely because capitalist youth sport is oriented towards a surplus. That harm, of course, then manifests in the forms of abuse, physical and emotional, overtraining, eating disorders, and everything else that have profound consequences for the well-being of athletes. That's where I can't tell. Can we really even pull those things apart? Because if we are professionalizing youth sport, if the ends are all of those institutional benefits, the benefits to fans, the benefits to organizations and coaches and everything else, where, how does play fit into that? <laughs> well, I think, I, I, look, I think you're asking, that's the question. And if meaningful reform does not roll back, control, divert, and change the professionalization of youth sport, we, we, we can't get there. And so I, I don't disagree with you at all on that point. I think you're, you're exactly right. Um, I think that um, capitalist sport in the youth context is particularly problematic and difficult to reform and, and sort of dangerous um, as an idea that can look great and fool us. Um, because of the fact that children are so vulnerable, because they have few rights, because of parental authority. Where I do see possibilities for an opening, and this is where I got in the paper, um, you know, parents are the key to this equation. Professionalization of youth sport falls apart if parents stop 
supporting it. If parents stop signing their children up for that, it, it, it will not continue. Parents are a key partner in this transaction. So as I look at meaningful sites of reform, I look at both the supplier end, which is, okay, well, we can regulate youth sport providers. We can you know, pass a whole lot of statutes, putting caps on the number of hours children train or something like that. Um, but what interventions can we do with parents because parents are the gatekeepers? So I think the fact that parents are the gatekeepers, I think it provides perhaps an entry to some innovative solutions and interventions. I think it also provides a very steep mountain to climb because as you correctly say, um, you know, there, there isn't a sub-discipline in psychology called sport parenting for nothing. <laughs> so, you know, parents are, are um, you know, a, a big part of the problem. So, so the answer is I left this paper feeling like I don't know that, that reform can meaningfully happen. I don't know. Um, but as I said, I, I'm very intrigued at the idea of trying um, especially as a laboratory for increasing children's rights. Thank you so much for that. Um, so that's all that we have for today. Thank you so much, Dion, for joining us and for lending us your expertise, allowing us to read this really phenomenal piece. And this was just wonderful. So thank you so, so much. Well, thank you both for engaging with it. This was such a terrific conversation. And I think more conversations like this, I, I, I want to believe, and maybe I'm just <laughs> naive. I want to believe that more conversations like this really can move the needle and, and set a foundation for at least attempting reform. And so I, I really thank you for having me on today.